We are in our fifth week in a series entitled, Follow Me, looking at and considering Jesus' command to follow him, a command that Jesus gives seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, and each time it is evident, if you read the text, that Jesus has far more for us than merely claiming his name and living the life we've always lived. He has more for us than just to make us into better moral figures. And he has more for us than just asking us to be adequate rule followers. Now, if you wonder why I keep making those assertions, I would point you to any number of books that have come out in the last decade that suggest that by and large, American Christianity no longer ascribes to a biblical concept of Jesus. Rather, we have turned and pursued what has often been called moralistic therapeutic deism or any of its after effects. A turn, a term that has basically existed for more than a decade, and this is what it means, that we now believe in a God who is not personal, he's distant, he has very little to do with my actual everyday life, but he's a God that wants me to be a better rule follower But far more than that, he wants me to feel better about myself. That's the ascribed Christianity we lean to. There are lots of books that now talk about that. And to subtly illustrate that for you, in 2004, Sarah Young wrote a book called Jesus Calling. It sold over 25 million copies, and even now, according to Amazon, it's number 167 on their total book sale list. I want to read you their February 1st devotion. Because I want you to listen and hear what she has to say. Follow me. Now, do you think that's a purposeful statement? That's a pretty pregnant statement, according to the New Testament. This is what she says. Follow me one step at a time. That is all I require of you. We're good so far, right? In fact, that is the only way to move through the space, the time world. You will see mountains looming, and you will start wondering how you're going to scale those heights. Meanwhile, you're not looking where you're going. You will stumble on the easy path where I am leading you now. As I help you get back on your feet, you tell me how worried you are about the cliffs that are ahead of you. But don't, but you don't know what will happen today, much less will happen tomorrow. Our path may take an abrupt turn. It may lead you away from these mountains. There may be an easier way up the mountains than is visible from this distance. If I do lead you up the cliffs, I will clip you thoroughly for your strenuous climb, she continues. But if you're paying attention, what she just told you is that Jesus exists to make you feel better about yourself. That he wants to prepare you for the hardship of life. Doesn't say anything about following me actually means. She's not calling you to a greater obedience in Jesus Christ. She's not calling you into the mission of Jesus Christ. She's just calling you to understand that Jesus kind of wants to give you a better path. He just wants to make your life a little... And if it's a harder path, he'll be with you. It's a book of self-improvement. It's a book of trying to make you feel better about yourself. And it's a subtle message that exists pervasively in most Christian writing today. So when Jesus says, follow me, what does he mean? Well, he literally means, I want you to come with me. 
We see that in the text. Jesus says, I want you to go on a journey with me. I want you to live my life. I want you to show you my life. I want to show you my love. And I want to transform you. There are seven statements in Matthew that say, follow me. And this is how Jesus describes that. He says, follow me to Matthew in Matthew 9. And when he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men to Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4. He's calling them then into his mission. Matthew 8, we talked about last week. He says to another, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Again, there's this call. Following me is entering into my mission. That's what we see in the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus is inviting us not just to believe in him, but to actually follow him. To go where he goes, to live where he lives, to talk like he talks, and to love like he loves, to become like him. Why? Because if we're not careful, books like this will make us feel like the point of Christianity is me. Where this book would tell you the point of Christianity is Jesus. It's not about me feeling better about myself. It's about me knowing that there's something far more than myself. Something far greater than myself. Something far more purposeful than myself. So as we've walked in Matthew in this series so far, we've seen him call disciples to himself in Matthew 4 and Matthew 9. We've seen him lay out for his disciples a picture of what disciple should look like in his first discourse, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. We saw him lay out and display his authority in chapter 8. And this morning, as we enter into chapter 10, we will see the second major discourse of Jesus. That is, his second long speech or his second sermon, if you'll let me put it that way. And this time, he's now sending out his disciples. He's giving them something bigger than themselves to think about, to consider, and to focus on. Matthew 10 Verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that he refers to the 12, and then he goes on to name them in the next three verses. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and his John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now if you know, they're, they're paired. They're put together in pairs. Why? Because Jesus would send them two by two. So he starts to lay out these pairings. You'll see that as we get, as we move through in the Gospel of Matthew. But it says in verse one that he calls them to himself. And that's a pattern we see repeatedly in the Gospel. So that Jesus will call his disciples in. He'd gather them up and then he'd send them out. Friends, you do need to know that that's a picture of a church. That we gather together to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, to be instructed in his words, to look at the words of the apostles, and then we send you out. That you come to be built up and you get sent out on mission. That's the whole point of gatherings like this. This is what Jesus 
did with his disciples. He gathered together and to send them out. And in this case, very specifically, he gathers together and he gives his, his disciples and he gives them authority in verse 1. The authority over unclean spirits and the authority to heal diseases and afflictions. Just to be clear, that is to cast out evil spirits and to heal disease. So let's pause for a second and talk about that. Because the text says he gave them authority. It is worth noting that grammar matters. Grammar matters because this is a past tense verb, which is to say it's not a present tense verb, which is not to say that he's giving this to everybody. It's a past tense verb, meaning he gave these disciples an authority for this mission. And that's important. It's important for us to understand and to know. Because Jesus' message was always initially authenticated by his works. Consider Matthew 9, 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' ability to heal the paralytic was a testimony, a very physical and actual testimony, so that people would see and understand that he could forgive sins. That dude can walk. You know I've got power. That's what Jesus is testifying to. And so he gives his disciples this ability to perform miracles, to authenticate that he was the Christ. Mark testifies to this in the last verse of his gospel, Mark 16, 20 telling of the disciples, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Mark testifies that their signs, their miracles, confirmed the message, that their signs would confirm that they were proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ and that was true. That's important. Because as we get to verse 5 in Matthew 10, as Jesus starts to send out his disciples for the first time, Watch this. These 12 Jesus sends out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and as you, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out the demons, You received without paying, give without pay. He gathers his disciples, he pours into them, he instructs them, and he sends them out. And he gives them a purpose, he gives them a mission, go and authenticate that I'm the Christ. Go, and he sends them on a very specific mission. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to your Jewish brothers and sisters, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go and proclaim that the Messiah has come, the Redeemer of all Israel. Go and tell them that he has come and prove it to them by healing, by raising, by cleansing, and by casting. And what I want you to at least consider for the first moment is that Israel wasn't an altogether enormous place. So the first place that these people are going to be called to are going to be people they know. 
It would be people they've walked with, people they've sat in synagogues with. He's calling them now to go out. He's training his disciples. He's training them for a mission. And please don't miss this. It's not that they would feel better about themselves. It's not to make a more morally superior people. Now, Jesus calls us to be holy. We can't get away from that. I preached all the way through that in January. But if our testimony testimony is merely that we're morally superior per people than the world, we lost the fight long ago. That's not what Jesus is trying to do amongst us. Our holiness should testify to the fact that we're transformed. But even our holiness is about our testimony to reach people. It's about the mission. Jesus trained and instructed his disciples so that he could send them out. He was preparing them to become missionaries, a people who live on mission. Now, I know your objection. Am I calling all of you to be missionaries? Well, I'd quickly point to you that if you follow through the life of Matthew, Matthew lived in Judea the rest of his life. Matthew was not Paul who hopped from place to place to place to place to place to place to place. Now, there's plenty of tradition that suggests that Matthew faithfully went on mission trips, regularly going to Syria and Ethiopia. But tradition holds he lived in the same place for the rest of his life, faithfully living on mission for Jesus Christ. Therefore, friends, I want you to see and understand that you are given the same mission, the same understanding that you are sent. That we are to understand that following Jesus necessarily means that we are sent. That we are a people with a mission that we are people who are called to live on mission. We, every last living, breathing soul in this room. It's not my job. We, we put missionaries up here, they go to the world. It's not their job. It's your job. It's all of us. It's the mission we've been given when we believe in Jesus Christ. When we take on salvation, Jesus says, follow me. Now we're going to be at different places along that path, but we're called to gospel obedience. So Jesus says, follow me and gives you a mission. We take it. We take it. He also tells them how to do it. Verse nine, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Take no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Jesus says, don't take anything with you. Don't take any money. Don't take any extra clothes or extra shoes. Basically, Jesus tells them to make no preparations for their journey. Why? Because he wants them to fully depend on him. He wants them literally to physically depend on him for everything, to understand that he would be sufficient for everything, that he could meet all of their needs even though he wasn't with them. 2011, I went on a mission trip to Nepal. They broke us up into groups, two by two. I was with a college student named Nathan Barnhart. We were given a journey. 
in Nepal, the gospel didn't reach Nepal until the 1950s. There are several places where they have big maps where they're tracing where the gospel has penetrated Nepal. They look for different places where the gospel has never penetrated, and then they send in teams. I was a part of one of those teams. So they give you a piece of paper with a trail. Gospel's never been here ever. So take your backpack, take the books, take all these things, but take nothing else with you. We lived that. We lived, don't take food, don't take a tent, don't take a sleeping bag. Just walk into a town, meet some people, and see if they'll let you stay with them. See if they'll feed you. And if they feed you, stay. And if they don't, keep hiking. That's depending on Jesus. And as you can tell, I have not missed many meals in my life. Why why do you laugh so hard? (laughs) It is amazing when we lean into Jesus fully how absolutely faithful he is. Friends, I'm not telling you not to pack your lunch tomorrow. I'm not telling you to leave your wallet at home. There are contextual differences here that are worth discussing. But what Jesus is putting before him, what the principle he's putting before his disciples is, is trust me for everything. Trust me that I'll be sufficient even for your physical needs. I've got it all taken care of. I am enough. Don't take anything on your journey. He's training them to live fully dependent on him. The same thing he's trying to do with you and me. That's a problem with living in the western part of our world, right? We are so sufficient that we don't have to depend on anyone. Because if I can't pay for cash, I can write a check. If I don't have my checkbook, I can put it on my debit card or my American Express or my Discover. I could take out a loan. I could put it, you know. We're, we live so dependent on ourselves that we're not asked to step out to trust him. And that invades every part of our life. We tend to live fully dependent on us. And Jesus is training them to see you must be fully dependent on me. So track with me as we walk through this text. He's sending them out and he's saying, be fully dependent on me. And then in verse 16, he warns them. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Which is to say that being sent out, living fully dependent on Jesus, does not make you safe and comfortable. Look at the picture Jesus is giving. It's a sheep amongst wolves. That's not a safe picture. That's a menu for dessert. That's You're going to be consumed. You're going to be devoured. And Jesus doesn't say flee. He doesn't say run and hide. He doesn't say avoid this. He says be wise and be innocent. And if you think being wise means avoiding standing out, if you think being wise means you avoid the wolves, Jesus gets more clear about what he means. Verse 17. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Note, he says there, not my, not your, their synagogues, their public places. Listen to what he says, verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake 
to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He doesn't encourage them to avoid pain. Rather, he calls them to see through it. He calls them to see through their discomfort. He calls them to see through their rejection. He calls them to see through their persecution to see a greater purpose. That being sent, he would be proclaimed. For my sake, stand before the governors. For my sake, bear witness. That Jesus will and can go to any means to reach anyone he wants to. Which is to say that you've specifically been placed, Acts 17 would testify to this, by the way, that your neighborhood that you live in is not an accident. Jesus put you there because he wanted a testimony for himself there. That your workplace is not an accident. Jesus didn't call you to be an accountant or a a dirt pusher or whatever it is. Because he had nothing better for you to do. It wasn't because he wanted you to be a minister and you're that, you couldn't pull it off. You have a calling that's probably better than mine. Jesus puts you where he puts you because he desires you to testify on his behalf, even in your suffering, wherever it is he's placed you. And he's even willing to send you to jail to have a testimony. He's even willing to have you beaten so that you can have a testimony. He's willing to send you anywhere. He desires to send someone because he's the king and he is sovereign and he can do it. I don't understand how anyone can read the Bible and follow an ounce of prosperity teaching. Jesus the king, Jesus the one with all of the authority calls us and sends us into pain. And he can do it. Because he's the king. Why would we ever think that this would be simple? Why would we ever think this would be convenient? Why would we ever think this would be easy? Why do we think we'll be well received? The gospel makes it pretty clear That if you want to stand up for Jesus Christ, if you actually want to testify to a salvation that you have, if you want to stand up for Jesus Christ, you will be rejected. You will be. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed and nothing that is hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is building disciples. He's training them. He's illustrating for them what following me looks like. And to these group of To these 12 guys, following him would have left an unmistakable print on all of them. 
We see that, right? Of the 11 believing disciples that's leaving out Judas, 10 of them are martyred. The only left out guy is John. And if you hold your tradition, John actually was martyred. The Romans tried to boil him to death, put him in a pot of oil, lighted him up, boiled him, and he didn't die. So they considered him dead and put him on an island. Like, we can't kill him, let's put him over there. Like, they clearly believed it. They clearly understood what following Jesus meant, and they carried it out. If you want to follow an outline, here it is. Jesus sent them. Jesus called them to be dependent on him, and he prepared them to suffer. And then they would go and spend the next year, year and a half, watching Jesus be rejected, watching Jesus suffer, and watching Jesus die. And they would know fully that part of their calling, part of their living, part of their mission would be to suffer, to be rejected, and to die for the cause. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that's part of our calling. If we don't see that Jesus is calling us to himself, he's sending us out, he's calling us to live fully dependent on him, knowing full well that we will be rejected and we will suffer. But as Jesus says a couple of verses later, verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, that is no small thing. That is the incarnate word. That's the creator. That's the king. That is Jesus Christ going before God the Father in his throne room and claiming you as his before all of eternity. That one belongs to me. He's mine. She's mine. I own them. They're mine. He's claiming you as a part of himself. According to Jesus, he's claiming you before his father because you claimed him before men. You identified with him. There's really no other way we can take this passage. There's not a lot of room here to wiggle out and say, yeah, but I believe privately. I believed in Jesus my, privately and I didn't want to tell anyone. I was scared. There's not a lot of wiggle room and this is Jesus testifying. This is the Christ. This is the one we say we believe in. This is the one we say we follow. And he follows it with a warning. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Following him is acknowledging him. It's being sent. These are the words of Jesus, and these are some of his final commissioning words before he sends his disciples out for the very first time. This is his second sermon in the Gospel of Matthew and it matters. 
It matters because he's commissioning you. He's sending you out. He's making plain through his word what following him looks like. And if for some reason you should think I'm misquoting Jesus or his purpose, he gets clear about that too, verse 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those are the words of Jesus the Christ. Friends, in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is emphatic. Following him is being sent, knowing that he will meet every one of your needs, that you are to be fully dependent on him, and knowing that you will be rejected. You'll be turned down. You'll be pushed away knowing full well that you will pay a price even amongst your family. And knowing that He will acknowledge you before the Father. Knowing that in Jesus Christ you have a great salvation knowing that in Jesus Christ you have been forgiven of all of your sin, knowing that in Jesus Christ He's forgiven you and He's redeemed you and now He sends you out as a testimony of the world that Jesus can forgive anybody, even vile sinners like me. One of my great moments, one of my great memories of my son being young was every night I would tuck him in I would, and I would sing to him. And I would sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. And he would commonly sing like Daddy. He's right. It's an amazing grace that Jesus would save a wretch like me. Friends, we have good news. We have the best news. We have the most absolutely incredible thing to share with a world that is grasping for anything to hold on to. Anything that might be true, anything that might be trustworthy, anything that would give them some standing or hope to stand on, and we have the truth. When Jesus sends you out, when you hear that to follow him, don't feel guilty. Don't walk away from here this morning feeling guilty. Feel commissioned. Feel sent. For all of us are at various levels of obedience. 
We don't have to feel oppressed. Lord, I'm sent. And I want to be dependent on you. And I'm not sure how this is going to go, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to go well. But I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to be dependent on you. And I'm just going to trust that somehow you're going to use a a feeble sinner, a wretch like me, for your kingdom's sake. Someday, this won't actually happen. Someday I'd like to, in heaven, watch DVDs of these moments. Because I'm sure these guys were terrified. Jesus sent them out in twos. Because when one of them was a pansy, the other guy's like, come on, I've got to go back and talk to Jesus about this. They built each other up. They encouraged one another. It's one of the reasons why we can't walk alone. It's one of the reasons why we're supposed to be in the church. That we would encourage one another that we are being sent and that he is enough. Let me pray for us. Father, this world will testify to us of many different gospels. This world will tell us that Jesus exists to make us feel better about ourselves. That's a false gospel. Father, the world will tell us that Jesus exists to make us a better rule follower so that our good would outweigh our bad, and that's a false gospel. The world would tell us that the whole point of it is just living better or prettier than those around us. That's a false gospel. Jesus came not to make us feel better about ourselves, but to tell us there's something far bigger than ourselves. Something way more important than me. He calls us. He sends us out in His full and complete sufficiency that we would live completely dependent on Him even our fears, even our anxieties, even our lack of preparation, even our lack of understanding. He takes all of those things into account when He sends us. Father, may You make us into a people that live dependent on Your Son, Jesus, and that are sent not to be successful, but to be faithful. And thank you for a great truth that you will acknowledge us before the Father in heaven. We hope and we trust in that. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to save us and then sending us out to proclaim a great salvation, to proclaim that we are not enough, that my effort is not enough, to proclaim that you are the hope of the world. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.